Well, good morning. Turn to Job in your Bibles. Right before the book of Psalms. That's where we'll start this morning. So good to be back with the Crossing Church. I enjoy opportunities to preach in other pulpits, fill other pulpits, because we see it as opportunities to get this message of the gospel, uh, gospel centrality, missional communities, some more places. Um, and we have opportunities to do that, a lot of us, throughout the year. So we can pray for Joseph Stogner this morning uh, as, we're, as we're worshiping. He's preaching in another church uh, that we have a good relationship with. But there's nothing like being here, being, with, being home, being with my family, and uh, breaking open the word with you guys. This is just everything that uh, I love about being a pastor uh, can be found in this room. Um, everything that I enjoy about being a pastor and a shepherd is just uh, personified by, by you all. And so grateful to stand and, and again proclaim the God's word to you all. Our journey through Old Testament wisdom literature stops this morning and for the next uh, three Sundays at the book of Job. So we've been in Proverbs for about five Sundays, Ecclesiastes for three, and Song of Songs for the last two weeks, all helping us to understand from the wisdom literature what God intends for us to experience life at its best. Now you could go to tons of places in the Bible to examine this, but as we were praying through what uh, series to go through next, uh, we had realized we had, we had one area we've never spent any time in, in the history of our church has been in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. So Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Proverbs uh, is a place we haven't been. So let's go there, and then what is a way we can tie all this together? And it's understanding God's wisdom helps us live life best. In other words, life at its best will be lived according to the wisdom of God, which is basically God's character and nature rightly applied to life. So the commands and the, the, the paths that God has set before us are not distinct from who God is. They flow from who God is. So it's not God over here just throwing stuff against the wall. Okay, we'll do that, and we'll do that, and just go do those things. No, the, the way of following God, the commands that he gives us, the way of life that we live is a reflection of who God is. So when by God's grace we live as people of integrity, people who are honest, it's because God is truth. By God's grace, when we are faithful to our spouses and loving to our spouses and other people, it's because God is the most faithful one and the most loving one. And we're living out that reality. When we work hard and we're generous, it's because God worked first. God created this idea of work when he created all things in six days and then rested. And because God is the most generous one. So the wise life is really the reality of who God is rightly applied to all of life. And as we live as individuals, we are striving to live this out. The only way this is possible is because the life of God is inside of us. Because the spirit of Christ is inside of us to empower this. If you set the commands of God before someone and they don't have the spirit of God to enable them to obey the commands of God, then you're going to crush them with guilt and condemnation. 
It's only those who have been resurrected in Christ, for whom the Spirit of God has moved in, who can look at the commands of God and say, number one, I want to do that. Number two, I can do that. Everyone else can't and doesn't really desire it for the right reasons. And so, don't hear the practical advice of the wisdom literature that we've walked through over the last several weeks and go try to do this on your own without God's help. It should cause you to run to God for help. Okay, I want this life. Help me. God, you have to be inside of me, empowering everything that I do. But if he does come to live inside of you and empower your obedience, then you can live this wise life that was spelled out in the book of Proverbs. You can fear God and obey his commands despite the fleeting nature of everything in the world, as we saw in Ecclesiastes. And if God has marriage in your future or if marriage is your reality now, you can experience the supreme joy and thrill of physical intimacy with that one person that is so beautiful and passionate. The Bible describes it as being drunk on love, being intoxicated with love. And this life of God inside of you will also allow you to walk through suffering in a way that's not typical or reflective of the world's wisdom, but of God's wisdom. So what does that look like? Well, we're going to try and find out over the next four weeks in the book of Job. The book of Job is part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It deals with how we see and experience God's wisdom when suffering is present. So how do we experience the wisdom of God? How do we experience God's best life for us when we are walking through suffering? More specifically, innocent suffering, but we're going to deal with all suffering. But Job deals with the most extreme suffering, innocent suffering. It's a book I probably have referred to in conversations as a chaplain or as a pastor uh, as much as any other book of the Bible, you know? Because when, when life is good, everybody's happy, life's going well, don't really need any chaplaincy or, or pastoral counseling. So most of those conversations, deep conversations, where people really are open up and are receptive to God's truth comes when they are suffering. Okay, let's talk about that. John Walton, Tripper Longman, they wrote an excellent book, How to Read Job. It's worth $10, uh, not a very long read. They say, when we come to the book of Job thinking we're going to get help when we suffer or hoping to find reasons for our suffering, you're not going to get any reasons for suffering in the book of Job. It's more about reasons for righteousness than suffering. Job is primarily a book not about Job, but about God. So we want to begin this morning, I want to begin with a basic overview of the story of Job and then dig deep into the first two chapters or dig deeper. Understand that Job is essentially a play. Much like the book of Ruth, uh, the story of Jonah, um, uh, other books of the Bible like that, the, the story of Esther. It, it, it's just the, the, this one story from this one person's life that we find out about. It tells a story about a man who we think lived around the time of Abraham or maybe a little bit before. So chronologically think Genesis 11 or 12 is when this happened. And it begins basic, with a basic summary of Job's life, how above board he is, and then it switches to this scene in God's throne room in which the righteousness of Job is challenged. Now, we'll, we'll dig deep into that in a little bit, but the challenger basically steps in, identified as Satan, the accuser, basically claiming that the only reason Job is so faithful in his service to God is because God protects and blesses him. And over the next two chapters, Job is confronted with some of the worst possible suffering 
any human being has ever experienced in which he loses everything but his life and his wife as a way of testing Satan's theory to see if it's true. Job keeps his faith, we'll see over the next, uh, next week, and then his three friends show up. And from chapters 3 through 27, you basically have Job in this conversation with his three friends. His three, three friends are saying, all right, Job, fess up. No one uh, makes God this mad to have all this happen to you unless they've sinned somehow. We don't see sin in your life. It's some kind of secret sin. You need to bring it to the table. And Job declaring with passion his innocence. I have not sinned in any way that deserves everything that I've suffered. The end result after these 24 chapters is Job has indeed not sinned in a way that would bring on that suffering. But even though he's vindicated, we don't really see God's wisdom until chapter 28, which prepares the way for God to show up later on. Job then, in chapters 29 through 31, he gives his last defense. He's ready for the Lord to appear. He's calling God out to have his back, to tell everyone, so everyone will know that Job indeed has not, in fact, sinned in a way that would deserve this suffering. Very bold, confrontational words from Job to God. But before God shows up, we see a fourth voice show up to confront Job, this young guy named Elihu, who up until this time had been silent. Elihu offers a slightly different perspective, but basically comes to the same conclusion. Job, you've sinned. Not because of some sin you've committed in the past that God is now punishing you for, but it's preemptive punishment because as you have gone through the suffering, your self-righteousness has come to the surface. And that is why you deserve all of this suffering. Finally, God shows up in Job 38. Job called God to come out and give an account for why he has allowed Job to suffer this innocent suffering. Step forward and let it be known that Job is indeed innocent. And God steps out as a tornado, a hurricane. All right, big boy, you called me to come out, and here I am. One of the most beautiful, powerful images of God showing up and speaking to a man in the entire Bible. I am God, you are not. I am not held accountable by you. I don't have to answer to you. Besides, my wisdom is beyond what you understand, but I am still in control, uh, not chaos. I am engaged. I am not distant, so trust me. And Job's response in chapter 42, the last chapter, is silence and humility. In some ways, some ways, God vindicated Job. God dismissed the perspectives of his friends. And in the end, God blessed Job again. The overall purpose of the book, then, is how should we think about God when disaster strikes, when suffering comes? More than Job being put on trial, really more than God being put on trial, it's really God's policies being put on trial. The way God orders the world and the way God works in the world. Is this good? Is it a good policy to allow the righteous to suffer? And what does the suffering of of the good allowed by God say about God's justice. We'll, we'll get into all that in the next several weeks. But let's go back to the opening scene and examine this challenge posed by Satan. Does Job serve God for nothing? Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and was in very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. The sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from waking, uh, walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is, your, is in your hand only. Against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in his, their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down your servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot, to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Father, we are thankful to have this story recorded so that we can learn more about you and where you are when we suffer and how we should respond and live with wisdom when we suffer. So help us this morning begin that journey. <coughs> Instruct us well. Open our eyes. Help us to see what you would have us 
Open our hearts to receive the truth that you have for us and transform us by the power of your spirit and the power of your word for the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at our view of Job. On the surface, Job is an amazing man, often held up as one of the heroes of the Bible. When you suffer, suffer like Job. An amazing man worthy of being identified by God is better than anyone else and worthy of being put on trial to determine if his motivations for serving God uh, are good. And despite losing everything in his life, he never curses God, never renounces his faith, his integrity is upheld. He is an Old Testament hero. But upon closer examination, maybe we should consider some different shades to this story. Job, according to the narrator and the, and the Lord, there was none like him on the earth, greatest among the east, blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. He was blessed with a large family and large herds of livestock and no doubt large crops in order to feed all the livestock. So large amounts of money. And he would offer sacrifices for his kids just in case they had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And he did this continually. And this is held up as an example of his righteousness. Not using his wealth to help out the oppressed or the poor. Not using his food supplies to feed the hungry. Instead, it's how he offers sacrifices, not for his sins, but for the sins of his kids that they might have committed in their hearts. Not any sin that anyone would have known about. It's actually more typical of religious rituals that would have been common to pagan nations of the ancient Near East and people who worship pagan gods than what you find in the scriptures about what God expects or desires. It says more about how Job views God than how righteous Job is. This will come out more as we move through Job, but Job is sometimes mistakenly held up on a pedestal as someone who is almost sinless. Certainly by God's grace, there are things we're going to learn from Job that we should say, yes, I hope by God's grace I can do that too. But we don't need to uphold him to be this almost sinless example and not also have a discerning critical eye to call him out or see things in his life that we should not follow as an example. Now granted, he was an innocent sufferer. There's no sin in his life that would justify what he would experience. But we need to rethink upholding him as unquestionably an example to follow. There were some deficient perspectives he had of God, and this, on one hand, could be seen in the religious piety of offering these sacrifices to God that Job seems to believe God requires, and he's going so over the top, maybe because he sees God as petty, and I need to keep doing these things so that God will continue to bless me and protect me. And let my kingdom expand. Now how Job responds in these two chapters to his devastation is admirable. He never curses God, never renounces his faith. That's an example that we should follow. And Job had a righteousness that was noticed by God and distinct and set apart from anyone else. Much like that of Noah in Genesis 6. Not a fully developed righteousness that we would understand now that we have the New Testament, which is reflective of the life of Christ in someone but more of a kind of righteousness that allowed him to live an above-average life as compared to everyone else around him. But we have to be super careful about reading too much of our New Testament theology 
back into the story of Job. We need to first understand how the original audience would have understood this story, how the original audience in the Old Testament would have understood this man named Job, which again helps us to keep the spotlight where it needs to be, on God and not on Job. So don't make Job the hero of the story. He's not the hero of the story. As you, it gets worse for Job, unfortunately. Not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. Which brings us to our view of God in these chapters. Which honestly, frankly, is a bit unsettling. Anyone okay with this perspective of God in these two chapters? In his throne room, serving Job up on a silver platter to Satan? To do as he wishes, just don't kill him? Like that's what torturers say in movies. Just don't kill him. Keep them alive longer so they'll suffer more. Is this really how we would expect our Father in Heaven to, to treat us? Is this how we expect our Father in Heaven, that He does treat us? If we're really honest, it's disturbing. And if you believe that that is really who God is, and how God really does interact with Satan about us, then we would probably adopt this, let me just fly under the radar mentality to our walk with God. I don't want to be a superstar in God's army, his kingdom, and I, I get brought up like Job got brought up. I'm just going to kind of sit the bench, you know, be in the game, get in there, play a little bit, but I'm not holding out for a contract. I'm not drawing any attention to myself. I'm just going to kind of do my own thing over here quietly because I don't want God to bring my name up when Satan comes around looking for someone to torment. Put those people you know, put, put the superstars, the missionaries that go overseas, put those people in the lab, God. Don't put me in the lab. And one desire I'm praying that the God would, would answer, one prayer I'm praying God would answer for us as we go through Job is to have our perspective of God that we see in Job redeemed and restored so that the more we understand Job, the more we would in our suffering run to God. The more we would trust our Father in heaven to not be afraid to suffer because we think we're some kind of rat in a lab experiment that God's carrying out with Satan. To help that, we need to see this opening scene and conversation between God and Satan as more of a literary device than necessarily being something that is literally true. The purpose of this conversation isn't to show us exactly what happens in God's throne room every day or how God and Satan seemingly wager over us and put us in the lab. It's more of a literary device setting up the characters for this play to unfold that will allow us to examine the issue on the table. It's, it's more of a, a, a wisdom theology thought experiment to examine this idea of why do people do what is right? Is it only because God blesses and protects them? There are several aspects of this that, that help us to see this. Why, why would God ask Satan where Job, where, where he's been, rather? God's omniscient. God doesn't need to ask Satan where, where he's been. He knows where he's been. Why would God even need to put Job in the test to determine if he serves God for the wrong reasons? God already knows this. Why would he allow Job to go through all of this just so the angels and Satan would know why Job, Job serves God? Is this the character of our Father in Heaven that we read throughout the rest of the Scriptures? So don't see literary devices and draw unnecessary conclusions about who God is and how God treats us 
from this scene that we have in the throne room of heaven. The literary devices are employed to set up these extreme examples to create the conditions that allow us to explore this question. Does Job serve God for nothing? It's kind of like in scientific experiments. You have variables and controls. You want to control everything in a scientific experiment except the thing that you're testing for. So these extreme examples are set up in such a way so that everything is controlled except for this one thing that is being tested, Job's motivation. It's more of, uh, of an exercise in wisdom theology application. Now, we'll get more to this next week, but on the table, it's really not Job. Job is the star witness in this examination. What's really on the table is God's policies. Namely, is it a good policy for God to bless the righteous and curse the wicked? Which is basically how Proverbs tells us life goes. Do what's good and God will bless. Do what's wrong and you're foolish and God will curse. The challenger Satan comes along and says it's not a good policy. Because what happens, it corrupts the motivation of the righteous. God, if that's how you want to run the world, you're God, fine, do whatever you want to do it. But if you're just going to bless the righteous and curse the wicked, then the righteous, over time, are only going to do what's right and love and serve you because you're blessing them and not cursing them, because you're protecting them and not bringing harm against them. And over time, they will only love and serve you because you take care of them. In other words, they won't love and serve you for nothing. They will only love and serve you for what you provide to them. Therefore, the challenger says, their motivations are corrupted. So let's put the most extreme example of righteousness in the lab and use him for this examination and see if it's true. Let's put him through the most extreme suffering, innocent suffering that anyone goes through except for Jesus himself. And let's see if he caves. And before we move into the results of the examination that we'll go through starting next week, I think it's really wise for us to stop here today and ask ourselves the same question that's on the table. Do we serve God for nothing? Do we serve God for nothing? What is the motivation behind the things that you do for the Lord? If the Lord took our life and put us through the same experiment, what would be the result? Would we just tap out? It's too much. I'm out. God, you can have it. Do you love God just for the sake of loving him? Are you satisfied with God alone? Or is your love and satisfaction in God dependent upon God protecting you and blessing you? If the blessing and protection you enjoy from God is threatened, if the health and well-being of those that you love are threatened, how would that affect your love and devotion to the Lord? If you show up in heaven one day, and the greatest joy that we can experience in heaven is God, and that's all there is, would you still want to be there? Would you be okay with that? Or would mom and dad and brother and sister and friend and fishing and golf and soccer and mansions and so forth have to be there too? There are many, many reasons people in our context show up in a place like this on a Sunday or claim to be part of a church or claim to be a Christian. In our context, there's not really a cost to being a Christian. 
In fact, here, it's still more advantageous to be a Christian than not be a Christian. I mean, honestly, if your name is on a sign that's stuck in someone's yard right now, running for an election to some office, is it not better if you're showing up in a place like this every Sunday? If you're public about your faith? Than if you were publicly anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-church? Like, wouldn't you just, people be like, why are you running for office? Like, don't you know this Monroe area? To be a Christian is a good thing. To be in a church is a good thing. In the Bible about South, there are all kinds of motivation questions that we need to ask ourselves because there is no cost. Why are you here this morning? Why are you part of a church? Why do we claim to serve the Lord? Like, it could just be family tradition. So to keep mom and dad happy or maybe to keep them off my back, just show up or claim to have some loyalty to the church, like even when they're dead and gone. You might keep it up as some form of nostalgia or connection to them. This is how they raised me. This is them teaching me what is right. I want to, to honor them, keep it going. And so this person who professes to be a Christian or a churchgoer simply does so because it's how they were raised and it's a tradition or the nostalgia that they want to maintain. So this person, if that's their true heart motivation, if they would have grown up in a Muslim land, then they would maintain the traditions of Islam. If they grew up in a Hindu land, they would maintain the traditions of Hinduism. So they're not a Christian because they see Christ alone as Lord and King in the universe and they embrace him with their heart. They're a Christian because it's how they were raised. And they just want to keep it going because it feels good. It feels like home. It feels like mom and dad. Some might show up to go, uh, in a place like this because God is like a good luck charm. If I show up in a place like this and kind of tip my hat to God, kind of jump through some hoops, maybe I won't experience too much hardship. Maybe I'll be successful in the athletic field or in, in school or in my job. I need God on my side to be successful, and so I'm going to show up to make him happy because why not? It doesn't hurt. Just an hour, hour and a half every Sunday. And at least I'll have that God box checked so I know I'm not offending him and that won't be a reason for me not to be successful. Because if I wasn't successful and I wasn't also checking the God box, it might be because I wasn't appeasing the old man in the sky. I mean, everyone knows that professional athletes are some of the most religious people on the planet. So they're also some of the most superstitious people on the planet. Are they really serving the Lord because they love Jesus? Some of them are. But how many of them are serving the Lord because they need a higher batting average? Or a better three-point percentage? Or they want a better contract when they come, come up for a new deal? Some may show up in a place like this as a form of penance. Like, I know I'm not really a good person. I know my heart does not really treasure God. I know I have all kinds of secret sins in my life. But if I can show up in a place like this every Sunday, it makes me feel like I'm doing something good. Maybe enough to outweigh the bad. Maybe enough to appease God and keep his wrath at bay. But I really love my sin more than I love God. And while I may seem to be super devoted when I'm in front of all of you, I, I really can't wait to get back to my sin. Because that's what I love. Or maybe it's some sense of morality. Like, this is the right thing to do. A lot of people agree this is a, a good thing to do. I want to do what's right and good. I want to be a person who's on the winning team. I know how this all plays out. I want to be seen as someone who's a winner and right, so of course this is where I'd be. But really, that's more about you appearing amazing than about you being captivated by God. It could be you've come here because you want something from God. You want God to 
Answer a specific prayer. You want to pass the MCATs. You need eight more points. You want your, a new job. You want your kids to be safe and okay. And so you come maybe because if you're really devoted to God, he will give you what you want. Like we could go on and on and on, but you get the idea. It's worth examining our motives. Why do you claim to be a Christian? Why do you serve the Lord? Why do you show up in a place like this every Sunday? Do you serve God for nothing? Or do you serve God for his benefits and protection and blessing? Or what you hope he would provide if you could impress him enough? All of that is treating God more like a pagan God than the one true most high God. And Job is, the story of Job is going to crush, crush all of that. And we don't expect to go through a situation like Job, the Lord, but, but the Lord is continually working in our life to bring about the same level of examination and pure devotion. The Lord is working in our life and the life of his followers to continually purify our hearts, purify our motives. Our Father in heaven is continually at work exposing our idols, chipping away the old, building up the new, so that more and more Jesus will be our treasure and Jesus alone. More and more we find our greatest and highest satisfaction in Jesus alone. I mean, it was Jesus who said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's Jesus who said the whole Old Testament could be summed up with loving God with everything that you are all the time. Him being your greatest love. It was Jesus who said the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13 is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field to have that treasure. It's Jesus who says this man gave up everything to have this one thing. God. It's Jesus who said in the next few verses, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of a fine, fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Another man who sees this treasure that he finally finds and sells everything he has, singularity of devotion, pure heart devotion to have this one thing that he doesn't have, God. This is the normal normal Christian experience, according to Jesus. This is not reserved for people who are in the ministry, people who go overseas, the super-Christians, you might say. This is normative. This is what Jesus called fishermen to, tax collectors to, lepers to, sinful, adulterous people to. Normal following of Jesus. It's Jesus who said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Which doesn't mean we have to do that to be a disciple of Jesus. But if we had to compare our love for Jesus and our love for any other person, our love for Jesus would be so great that our love for others would look like hate. A few verses later, verse 33. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus knows the cost is heavy and the price is significant, which is why between those passages, he tells a story about a man who wants to build a tower, 
But first, he has to count the cost. He has to know what you're getting into. If we present a gospel that is so weak and watered down that the cost to deciding to follow Jesus is no greater than the cost to decide to have a new subscription service, well, I have Netflix and Hulu, but Disney Plus, that looks amazing. Ah, it's eight more bucks. All right, I'll get it. If that's the level of agony we have to go through in order to determine if we'll follow Jesus, we have presented a gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus. We have presented an American gospel. It's just about your satisfaction in the things you can have and the stuff you can acquire. If we present a gospel that doesn't help us see what Jesus demands, that he demands everything from us, Everything is on the table when we follow Jesus. There's nothing we can hold on to as a treasure greater than Jesus. Nothing. Everything's on the table to follow you. You call me to give it up, sell it, sacrifice it. I will because Jesus, I have you, and that's enough. If we don't present that gospel, we will have followers of Jesus who only serve God for his benefits and not for the sake of having him. It's a wicked religion that we've created in the Bible Belt that has watered down the gospel to the point where over 95% of the people who live around here claim to be a Christian. But how many of them serve God for nothing and are satisfied and have the greatest joy in their life and the deepest joy in their hearts because they have Jesus alone and aren't expecting God to give them things or protect them from things? There's no cost to being a Christian where we live. Sure, add him on. Maybe it'll help. Maybe I'll get lucky. But it's not life and death. It's not like I have to have Jesus. I mean, honestly, if you took away Jesus and church from my life, I mean, would my life look really any different? If that is true of anyone here or anyone in our context, I would have great reason to question if they really are followers of Jesus. If you're really living a life where Jesus is the king of your heart. And guys, God, help us never fall into that trap. Like it can happen to every single one of us as we move through this life. We can fall into that trap uh, to have idols that, 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 that we love more than Jesus. The good promise for us to remember is this. God knows this is our heart problem. What Job so dramatically walked through to examine this question is really happening every single day in our life. Romans 8, 28-29, and we know that for those who love God, all things, good and bad, work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." None of us have walked through the extent of disaster that Job experienced. But God is always at work in our lives through the good and the bad for our good and to conform us to the image of his son. That's the goal. That's the goal. The image of Jesus whose heart was the only heart for whom it could be said he loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. 
all the time. There's no other person on the face of the earth that's true of all the time. It's a process for us that doesn't end in this life. It's ongoing, continual happening. Our Father chipping away the old, building up the new, exposing our idols, exposing our motives, so that more and more it can be said of us, Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is the most precious person that I have. Or rather, who has me. God is our greatest love. If I lost everything and all I had was God, he would be enough. By his grace, we would cry out, naked I came from a mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. John Piper said in his book, God is the Gospel. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, with no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? crucible of Job working out in our life is to refine our faith so that more and more we would be satisfied with Christ more than if we had everything else and not Christ. Like, I know. I know. You're thinking, I got a long way to go. Me too. We have a long way to go. But our Father in Heaven knows this. And He's not here to crush us. He won't bruise, or he won't break the bruised reed. He won't extinguish the smoldering wick, Isaiah tells us. He's not wagering and bargaining over us with Satan, over our motivations. He is gentle and patient and strong and sustaining as he works this out in our life. Like read the rest of Romans 8, if you know the rest of Romans 8. He never quits on his kids. He gives us everything we need for this to happen in our life. And nothing can strip us away or, or wrestle us away from his love. So brother or sister, Jesus is at work in you. Wherever you are this morning, Jesus is at work. You are still alive. Jesus is still alive. And whatever he's exposed and brought to the surface this morning, the gospel is still powerful. The spirit of God is here to help. You say no to sin and run to Jesus again and embrace him and be embraced by him as your treasure. And if, by God's grace, the Spirit is exposed this morning, someone who doesn't know Jesus, like you're, you're just being religious or you serving God for the wrong reasons, is exposed, you never come alive in Christ. Guess what? Jesus is here. The gospel is still powerful. The Spirit and Word are calling you today to live and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Father, we are so thankful for your spirit, your word, the gospel that saves us, is saving us, and will save us. So that as the bad news of our sinfulness is again exposed by your word, the good news of your grace is there to heal and forgive and restore and mend and this good work you're doing in us today, it never ends until we stand in your presence as your children, 
glorified forever. Jesus, thank you for making all of this possible. Help us to join you in this work and not fight against you. And for anyone here who has never come alive in Christ, may today be the day of their salvation. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.